Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. If someone stood up in a crowd and raised his voice up way out loud and waved his arm and shook his leg, you'd notice some. If someone in the movie show yelled, Fire! In the second row! This whole place is a powder keg! You'd notice them. And even without clucking like a hen, everyone gets noticed now and then. Unless, of course, that person it should be invisible, inconsequential. That, of course, is from the musical Chicago. It proves two things. Sometimes it really sucks to be invisible. And also, John C. Riley can sing? Two amazing things. We're going to talk about invisibility today. Invisibility today. You might have heard me say before the news, when I fantasize about a power that I could have, it probably is most often invisibility. Although... You know, as this song illustrates, it does suck to be invisible at times. And, you know, in reality, well, in non-reality, I mean, H.G. Wells is Invisible Man. You know, he's not real happy about being invisible. Uh, and it hasn't made him a better person either, which is also the case with Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to see this a little bit more in our second segment. But like in the Fantastic Four the thing is like super strong and Mr. Fantastic can stretch his body and his arms in all kinds of directions and the human torch can be on fire. And Sue Storm, who was Invisible Girl when I was a comic book reader, I guess probably Invisible Woman now, you know, it just seems like a, not, not the best of the powers. So it seems less exciting fundamentally. But invisibility, though I thought about it in, in the right way, is a very exciting topic. And we are going to talk uh, to really kind of the go-to guy these days if you're going to have a conversation of this te- of this uh, type uh, Gregory Gabor is the author of Invisibility the history and science of how not to be seen and a professor of physics and optical science at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte welcome to our show uh, Gregory Gabor well thank you great glad to be here actually so tucked into your title your subtitle is I think a little joke that I think I recognize. Yes, it is. And it's funny that a lot of people get it and a lot of people seem to think that I don't get it and explain it to me often. Right. Um, it's a reference to a Monty Python skit about how not to be seen, in which the basic idea of how not to be seen in the skit is hide behind a bush or hide behind a tree. 
Um, which doesn't turn out too well for the people who do it. But. No, whenever they are announced by the uh, by the presenter, the announcer, you know, it'll be uh, Mrs. Alice Winstead of uh, Coughings on March, and she steps forward and she's immediately shot by an unseen sniper. So, but it, it, it makes an interesting point. It was just because I can't see you. Well, let me give you another example. There was a series uh, on television uh, some number of years ago called Dharma and Greg, and there is literally only one thing I remember from that series, uh, and it's, it happens on the day of the wedding between Dharma and Greg, and and Greg walks into the room where Dharma is in her wedding dress, and Kat, uh, let's hear what unfolds a one. What are you doing? Wait a sec, can you see me? Yes. Oh, I totally misunderstood that whole groom can't see the bride in her wedding dress. So just because I can't see you doesn't mean I'm that you're invisible, right, Greg? I mean, you c- could be uh, hiding behind a bush. That doesn't make you invisible. Yeah, I mean, the way I like to say it is that the word invisibility is really suggestive, but also very vague. So <laughs> strictly speaking, the word invisible means you can't be seen. So you could be hiding behind a tree or you could be sitting in a dark room. But when we say the word invisible, most of us, we really mean something different. We mean that you're there, but somehow the light is not interacting with you. And it's as if you're not there as far as light waves are concerned. Yes. And we'll get to that. I mean, that I think that is true, invisibility. If there's a middle ground, it might be camouflage, particularly the, the kinds of animals who are able maybe even to change their own colors so that they're very, very difficult to see. That feels like a little bit less of a loser move than just hiding behind a bush, but it doesn't feel like full invisibility. Yeah, that's true. I, I would not characterize it as full invisibility. It's a type of invisibility. And it's also very effective. It's quite amazing how hard it can be to see things that are camouflaged. I have a friend on Twitter who does a find that lizard game. She posts photographs of a nature scene and you have to try and spot the lizard in the photograph. And I've never once succeeded. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, that kind of thing can can be absolutely, absolutely amazing, but probably not quite uh, invisible. So in order to understand invisibility, we have to know a little bit about something that most of us don't know anything about, which is the science of light, the nature of light, photology, optics, uh, all of this kind of stuff. And most of us have no <laughs> It turns out most of us have no idea how our eyes and our brain get any information at all. And I'll give people an example that most of them will not recognize uh, because I'm guessing 80% of our listeners have never looked at a TikTok ever. But so there are these TikToks, and I will try to be the dude in a TikTok, where a person takes an egg and a piece of paper, and he places the piece of paper flat against the glass of a mirror. And then he puts the egg behind that piece of paper. And then there's sort of a little camera pullback, and you can see the egg, the reflection of the egg in the mirror, even though that is fully behind a piece of paper. And the TikTok dude goes... How does the mirror know that the egg is there, man? Uh, <laughs> and the answer is, Greg, most of us have no idea how that could possibly be true because we don't understand how light and optics work. So maybe that's a good place to begin. Explain that one, uh, which I know that you can absolutely do. Sure, yeah. In fact, I knew exactly what you were talking about as soon as you said TikTok. <laughs> so, yeah, I think a lot of people have this perception that somehow – the mirror image is created by something going straight through the mirror from the object 
to the mirror itself, which is why people get baffled by that illusion. But what really is happening is just that oh, the way a mirror works is it just reflects rays of light. So if you have an egg, light is scattering off of the egg and the rays of light, some of them bounce off the mirror. And after they bounce off the mirror, they go to your eye. And so, yeah, if you're standing right behind the piece of paper and the egg, obviously you can't see through the piece of paper. But if you stand off to one side or you get close to the mirror on the side, you're seeing the rays of light that have caught, come from the egg, have bounced off the part of the mirror that's not blocked by the paper and then bounced right into your eyes. So and this is going to be relevant because as we talk about actual sort of real life effects to achieve something that could be called invisibility. A lot of those kinds of factors come into play. And and maybe, so we should say also that most of what you see in movies and stuff like that isn't that helpful because it's like, you know, Kevin Bacon gets injected with some quantum syrup or something and and, and then he, he turns invisible in like the weirdest way too. It's like an x-ray is happening like to his body, like his outer flesh goes away first and then his organs and then like the last thing is his skeleton and that disappears too and then he's really angry. But invisibility is typically not a power that our bodies are going to acquire very easily. It's not something we would be able to turn on and turn off the way Invisible Woman does and it's probably going to exist in the area that you just just described, the way eyes and light and things like that interact. And we should say that for some reason or other, 2006 was like this bumper crop year for scientific papers about approximations of invisibility. So speaking to our audience as you would to a child, <laughs> explain what was going on in those two, those two papers in, in the same year. Yeah. Um so a very small bit of background is there was a bunch of research before 2006, including some stuff that I was related with, which is how I got involved in the whole mess, that people were kind of pretty convinced that invisibility couldn't happen. So before 2006, most people just thought that's going to stay science fiction. And then in 2006, people came up with these new theoretical mathematical techniques for designing these invisibility cloaks. And so it became a big deal, first of all, because nobody thought it was possible. And second, because suddenly people could explain how one could, at least in principle, make these invisibility devices. And there was a lot of math involved. I mean, is there a way that you could sort of say what the basic idea of these devices was? Oh, yes. So the really the idea is that you make this sort of structure, and it kind of helps to picture maybe like a like a glass sphere with with a hollow region inside and it's possible in principle to design the glass so that any light that comes into the glass gets guided around that central region and gets sent on its way in exactly the same direction that it came in and it's often described like water flowing around a, a rock in a stream, that the light kind of bends, does a little detour around a hidden region and goes exactly on its way as if nothing were there in the first place. And so whatever's in that middle region never gets touched by light at all and can't be seen. And we get all of our information about that region in our eyes uh, from light, from light going into our eyes. So if light isn't telling us about something, then as far as we can tell, it's not there. Exactly. If the light, if the light is behaving exactly as 
it would as if nothing were there in the first place, then we have no way of telling that anything is there until we go and touch it ourselves. So do all all the kind of operant uh, and, and, you know, sort of harboring some spark of hope kinds of scientific experiments pushing towards invisibility, do they all involve that kind of just sort of bending light around uh, a physical object and then kind of rejoining it on the other side as if nothing nothing happened? Is that just the way it's going to work? Or are there some uh, other ways, other models that might work? Oh, there are actually are a few models now. And as you accurately said, in 2006, this sort of topic exploded and suddenly there were hundreds of papers all over the place and people started coming up with all these different ideas. And one that seems much more plausible is, or at least one that has some more flexibility, is what you might call active invisibility. So the, the first cloak that I described it doesn't actually do anything after you make it. It just sits there and the light just sort of goes around the object naturally. Active invisibility would be a sort of system where you have cameras all over the object. Those cameras record the image of the, record the light that's coming in. And then there's also projectors all around the object that reproject the light on the opposite side so that it looks like there's nothing there. So you have this sort of recording and projection strategy going on. I mean, the problem with that, I mean, in terms of being a superhero or a supervillain or something, is you really can't move around to a lot of other locations, right? You pretty much have to stay in that place where that whole thing is working. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how complicated the system gets because I think the idea is that if you had a really powerful computer controlling all of this, it could constantly adjust and mm -hmm. adapt to what's being projected or what's being received and what's being projected. Though, yeah, if you're moving, it would probably probably be somewhat noticeable if you're moving very fast. I think of the movie Predator and the Predator looks really invisible when it's standing still, but when it's moving, you get a pretty clear image of what it's doing. Right. I think Tony Stark could probably get the bugs out, out, out of that problem. But yeah, I mean, for people who are having trouble picturing this, and I, I'm stealing this idea from another podcast that you appeared on, sometimes <laughs> you might see somebody with like a Halloween costume where it looks like there's a hole in the middle of his chest. And what there really is is an iPad that's showing you what's behind him uh, or some approximation of what's behind him. Uh, that's a crude approximation of what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's just the camera records the scene coming in on one side and projects that image on the other side so that it looks like there's a hole or an invisible person. So people are listening and they're, you know, probably mildly confused, but I think we've done a pretty good job so far keeping keeping them from getting, you know, extremely confused. But they might be wondering, well, so what's he saying? I mean, are we like a couple of years away from saying, I don't know. Dude was here the whole time. He was invisible. I didn't know. I mean, I don't think this is really on the on the near horizon, right? Yeah, I don't think so. And probably the fact that it's a little tricky to explain without me waving hands and drawing a bunch of pictures indicates that it's a complicated subject. And light in general likes to interact with stuff. Light doesn't like to just pass through things and pretend it's not there. So you have to work really hard and make a very complicated system to make something invisible. And Though in principle, we have a pretty good idea of how it could be done. In practice, we're not really sure how to build the devices that could do it. 
You know, we so, we sometimes talk about how the space program threw off, you know, some pretty interesting things that were biomedical applications or stuff that you could have as a coating on a frying pan or whatever. My, my guess would be that all of the things we're talking about right now, they might be directed at the really far distant idea of something approximating the kind of invisibility that we see in fiction. But I would assume, meanwhile, we're learning an awful lot about how light works, how to get images into people's eyes, uh, how maybe to help I don't know, a surgeon see what he or she needs to see. Could you talk a little bit about the the kind of the spin-off things from this kind of technology? Yeah, and there's been a lot of it, which has been one of the nice things about it is that most people see invisibility as kind of sinister, but if you go beyond just trying to imagine hiding behind somebody or hiding in a room, there's a lot of interesting applications. One researcher in 2003 who created this sort of projection system like we're talking about he imagined things like you could make, you could take like a, a CAT scan or an MRI of a patient, and then you could project the image of the person's internal organs on the surface, on the skin of a patient to aid surgeons in finding the right place to make incisions for surgery. And the same researcher also said, well, you could also use this sort of idea of recording an image and just projecting it to make the interior of a car or the interior of an airplane cockpit effectively see-through so that you could see everything around you and there would be no blind spots in your car you'd always know or your plane you could always see everything around you at all times well first of all i do want to say in the movie hollow man they have that first thing down right because they've got this <laughs> This gorilla whose heart starts to fail, but they can just see the heart right there. I mean, there's nothing. It just happens to be at that particular moment. There's yeah. no skin or anything else. You, you can just sort of see the heart. You can see exactly what you need to do. I feel like if my surgeon needs that kind of help, like, where's the guy's liver again? Could Just show me again where his liver is before I cut. I feel like I need a better surgeon if he needs that. But I, I can see at the kind of micro level that that would be helpful. And of course, because gee, I, I have now read enough of your stuff and listened to you on podcasts, you do know every Everything about invisibility and every single cultural reference. I don't need to tell you that Wonder Woman already has an invisible plane that she you can see through, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is like why no one ever uses the bathroom on that plane. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, I, I guess, you know, before, we're about to take a break and we're going to talk more specifically about how this turns up in culture uh, and, and in science fiction. I guess the other thing that I would ask you is, I mean, I think also when we talk, talk about invisibility, People, first of all, think about the Romulan cloaking device in Star Trek in which you just can't see the spaceship and then suddenly you can see it, the whole thing, and the sky is empty. But people might also think about stealth bombers and stuff like that. The whole there's The military is really interested. It's one of their favorite things if the enemy doesn't know they're there. <laughs> yeah. That's like a great thing. So, yes, surgeons, uh, yes, safer cars. But the people who like to break things and kill people probably are going to be very interested in anything that could be called a cloaking device. Oh, yes. And there's been a lot of funding for research into invisibility and understanding how all this works and exactly for that reason. And in fact, the first explosive amount of research on invisibility came about because one of the researchers who was kind of pushing his own work in this sort of mathematics that involves cloaking was asked by one of the Department of Defense funders, hey, could you share something really exciting that'll get her attention. And he sort of shrugged and said, well, how about I make an invisibility cloak? And he kind of thought of it as a joke, but nobody else thought of it as a joke. 
Right. Although, although, you know, it's interesting just in the pure mechanics of it. Harry Potter and his well, no, actually, let's do this in the second segment. But all right, but I, but uh, you know what I'm about to say. So we'll take okay. a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a, a lot more about invisibility as it has been imagined by imaginative people. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. People stop to stare and they paid attention whenever I was there. I could put on some heels, I could wink with my eye, but I can kiss that attention, attention goodbye. I'll be invisible woman, I'm part of a crowd. If I'm gonna be hurt, then I have to shout out real loud oh, All my beauty has it gone But I'm still standing tall How come you can't see me at all? All right, so we're going to move from science to science fiction and... And we'll talk a little bit about the kind of um, social invisibility also that you hear referenced in that song. Uh, our guests are Gregory Gabor, the author of Invisibility, the History and Science of How Not to Be Seen, and a professor of physics uh, and optical science at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Joining us also is Linda Yazik, uh, Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. So, uh, Greg, before we go to Linda, we should say that this idea of invisibility stretches back, back, back to some of the earliest legends. Um, it's certainly there in Greek mythology. And it, it typically, we should also probably say that there's a distinction worth making between 
entities that are just invisible all the time. They're, they're everywhere in folklore. Uh, they don't turn invisible. They just are invisible. And the notion of a poltergeist, for example, is something that's invisible and makes itself heard, basically, by banging on things and causing trouble. And, you know, a little closer to the present in the very, very wonderful Jimmy Stewart movie, Harvey, there's a rabbit who can only be seen by Jimmy Stewart. He's a six-foot, three-and-a-half-inch-tall rabbit named Harvey. But then, Greg, there's this idea of turning invisible, and, and turning invisible because you need to get in somewhere and get something and get out, uh, which heroes in Greek mythology have to do. So we start running into this idea that maybe you could have a cloak or a hat, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the earliest stories involved is was mentioned by Aristotle, the Ring of Gyges, which is sound will sound very familiar to a lot of people who are fans of fantasy fiction, that a shepherd finds a magical ring that... When he per- ter- puts it on and turns it a certain way, he turns invisible. When he twists it another way, he becomes visible again. And he immediately uses it to kind of overthrow the, the local kingdom and uh, marry the queen. All right. And so, um, uh, by the way, uh, my apologies. <laughs> really not myself today. I, I said Linda when I meant Lisa. Lisa Yazik is a Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies uh, in the School of Literature, Media, and Communications at uh, Georgia Tech. So... Um, let's uh, add you to our conversation. Uh, and, and Lisa, give us sort of a sense uh, of how how pervasive this idea of invisibility is, and maybe also whether it's often connected to villainy. I think as we sort of think of modern science fiction, either bad people are can turn invisible or people turn invisible and it kind of makes them worse than they, they were before. But But I guess there are heroes too, right? Yeah. So first of all, hi, Colin. Hi, Greg. Great to be here with you all today. And you're absolutely right. Yeah. Invisibility is is just as it's a really old uh, trope in culture. It's an old, it's one of the oldest story types in science fiction. You see stories, you know, as early as the 1800s, right when the genre is coming together. Um, And you're right that it, there's a really strong tendency in science fiction from sort of its its modern beginnings in the 1800s to today to say that there's a lot of bad things associated with indivis- or with invisibility. If you apply it to individual bodies, it's going to drive you insane, or maybe you're insane and that's why you're doing it. <laughs> uh, goodness knows if you uh, are using it for personal gain, that's no good. And often in science fiction, especially once you turn the corner to the 1920s and 30s, it's used offensively by aliens. Um, I guess you see that in some earlier stories too, that idea that you brush up against something from an invisible dimension or aliens are maliciously and invisibly traveling around uh, amongst us to do something. Right, um, but having said that, you're yeah. absolutely right. There are good ways you can use uh, invisible or invisibility technologies. And it's a lot like what I think Greg was talking about in the last segment, that Often in stories where it's being used for military purposes and especially defensive purposes, especially if it's defensive purposes by humans to protect themselves against aliens, then it's all good and you're good to go with with your invisibility as long as you're using it to help others. Right. Preferably other humans. So invisibility is in the eye of the non-beholder. Um, ha, exactly. And um, so, you know, Greg, one thing that you, you have pointed out is there were some pretty early, kind of in the earliest stirrings of what you could even call science fiction. There were some depictions of invisibility that maybe weren't that far off the mark from the conversation we were having in the first segment. There were some, as there tend to be, some sci-fi writers who really were kind of thinking this whole question through. Yeah. um, One of my favorite stories and authors is Abe Merritt, who wrote a lot of weird fiction in the early 1900s. And in one of his novels, The Face in the Abyss, he describes these 
invisible kind of flying dragons. And he complete he doesn't really explain how they do it, but he completely nails the idea of imagining that these creatures are able to guide light around themselves and send it on its way like water flowing around a rock in a stream, even got the same metaphor that the later scientists used to describe the same effect. Right. That's, that is impressive. That is impressive to have thought, thought that far through. So, Lisa, I think there's also a way in which, I mean, you know, in a non-science fiction con, uh, context, Ralph Ellison writes The Invisible, Am- Invisible Man right. about, about social invisibility, about racial invisibility. Um, that's also, I think, present even more recently. There's a, a French uh, sort of heist th- series uh, called Lupin, where I think the man is of West African origin, and he... He can sneak in and out of places because he's invisible. He's invisible in the sense that as a West African in Paris, he doesn't attract as much attention. People see that as a service person, somebody who's there to do some job, uh, and he can get in and out. But that's a little bit played with also in the realms of science fiction, too. There's that sense maybe of the, the black invisibility. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And you had already mentioned Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And I'd also point people to uh, Sam Greenlee's marvelous 1973 uh, crime drama called The Spook Who Sat by the Door, uh, which uh, is a wonderful sort of parody of the civil rights struggle and one black person's attempt to uh, be part of the government and the FBI. So that's really interesting. But for sure, um, yeah, what we see interestingly is there's actually a really long tradition of of black people, especially in the United States, um, writing science fiction about uh, invisible cities and using certain kinds of technologies, especially cloaking devices, right, to to make themselves invisible. Uh, and of course, today we see that in 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 uh, Wakanda, right, and in the Black Panther movies for sure. But that's a trope that goes all the way back to um, we might think about Sutton E. Griggs's Imperium Imperial, which is from the 1880s, which imagines that there's an entire United States under the United States. It's been built by black people and it's completely invisible to white people. And you have to like knock over a statue of Thomas Jefferson at a certain like place in Waco, Texas to access this underground America. So in that case, it's not literally invisible, but by the time you're getting to like Pauline Hopkins of One Blood in 1902, 1903, she's imagining an ancient uh, black uh, African a super city powered by super sciences and technologies, mostly blue and green ones, non-industrial technologies, instead uh, really sort of biological and natural technologies, uh, shielded by a cloaking device from its jealous white neighbors who might kill, might try to kill um, these people and take all their good things, and defended, of course, by an elite military squad of women. So really, these this idea of um, not just individual invisible black people who can move in and out of white cultures, but entire black cities and nations hiding themselves from us in a variety of super high tech ways. It's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, Lisa, I think it's kind of interesting when you think about power structures and then you think about the fantasy that's involved in, in working out science fiction or fantasy literature. Mm-hmm. You know, you can either build a, a an alternative power structure that's as big as the one that you need to fight or you can, with a much smaller stroke, create the capacity to undermine that power structure. And, you know, I was kind of joking at the beginning of the show about and the Fantastic Four. The three guys have these powers that are basically connected to violence, you know? The thing can throw stuff around. He's really strong and Mr. Fantastic can stretch himself all kinds of different ways. And the Human Torch can literally turn himself on fire, which is certainly kind of a, a male metaphor uh, in, in a lot of pretty destructive ways. And then the woman, Sue Storm, she can turn herself invisible. And it, it felt 
I don't know. I don't think I thought about this as a kid, but you look at it, you think, okay, that's because women aren't allowed to be violent within this particular genre. They can't be violent. What they can do is kind of undermine the violence of other people, which, you know, is a little bit of a, a seductive and, and ultimately oh, sort of what, uh, you know, it's, it's not a healthy trope for women to think about themselves that way. It's also not healthy for I, them to want to be violent, I suppose. I, I was going to say, I don't think <laughs> it's not seductive for women. Uh, you'll notice women don't really write stories about invisibility. And I think it's for the simple fact that women are invisible in our culture largely right i mean i i hate to say it but patriarchy is alive and kicking my friends if you've missed the news cycle the last year or so and uh you know when when women try to make themselves visible in culture uh, there's often movements to make them invisible again and so you know i was thinking about this because i was reading uh, a, a, a science fiction article about invisibility and they're like oh this is like one of the main fantasies of science fiction and i'm like i can't think of a a single woman who writes about that particular fantasy, interestingly. Um, Although so, maybe in know, the context of ghosts, right? That would yes, be maybe the way right? to Well, up. that's just it. Is women have to switch over to a different genre. They switch over and they tell invisibility stories, right, in, in ghost stories, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, Greg, um, we're talking about the fact that, yes, invisibility often is depicted as kind of a dangerous thing to use. And that's uh, also very true in fantasy. I mean, certainly the... The Ring of Power, you know, which can turn you invisible if you're a hobbit. And there's sort of the implication that the hobbits are, they don't really know how to use the rings to do like bigger stuff, but they can turn invisible anyway. Uh, <laughs> but it's not good. It's not healthy. It makes you more and more like Sauron as you go along. Um, but there is something nice about the idea of invisibility being used for something good. And there are some instances I know, Greg, that you cite within the world of sci-fi. Yeah, um, there's a, a pulp story called The Invisible Robin Hood by Iando Binder, which I believe is Earl and Otto Binder. They combine their names. And The Invisible Robin Hood is really sort of an, a relatively early superhero story about a fellow who discovers how to make an electrical suit that can turn himself invisible. And he also has a laboratory accident that makes him disfigured, so he kind of hides himself. You see a lot of superhero tropes appear in this one story. Um, but he uses his power to strike fear into the hearts of criminals and to fight for all that's good and and just. Well, yeah. And th once again, this is this idea of how do you face up to a power structure? And, you know, there's this kind of kind of guerrilla thing, you know, Robin Hood sort of, you know, strikes from the forest, goes back into the forest. That damned elusive Pimpernel, the Scarlet Pimpernel, is popping in and out and he vanishes. Uh, and, and Lisa, this goes on and on. It, it, it sort of crosses into the cyberpunk fiction uh, of William Gibson, right? The idea of if you could, once again, if you could turn invisible, you wouldn't necessarily have to match the power structure in power. Yeah, that's actually one of the things, one of the really interesting places where you see it. And often what's happening in cyberpunk, right? These are are little little criminals in a great big criminal world, right? So they're they're not they're the best people they can be in a bad world. So they may not be heroes exactly using these technologies to defend the rest of humanity against, you know, attacking aliens or a mad scientist, but they are often, you know, using these technologies, they're often stealing them from bigger institutions, the military, uh, corporations, et cetera, and then using them against those institutions to try to, yeah, carve out a little more space for themselves so these little people can live a little longer and prosper a little more. Um, I, I almost said this in the first segment, Greg, but we should say it now. You know, it, you do see a lot of kind of Sue Storm kind of stuff in the world of fantasy. Somebody who could just turn invisible. You put on a ring and you turn invisible. But Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility 
where the thing has to cover you, kind of in the, once again, is a little bit closer to the mark of the actual experiments being done here, right? There's, there's, there's a way in which that's closer to what we would wind up having, I think, than this kind of organic power to turn our bodies invisible. Yeah, we don't really have any idea of how we could really make ourselves physically invisible, like make our bodies perfectly transparent. So really the idea is to put something around us that'll keep the light from touching us at all, and that'll guide the light around us so it doesn't interact with us. And that's, in a magical sense, what Harry Potter's cloak does. So, um, Lisa, I have to ask you a question. People get asked a lot. Um, Power of flight or power of invisibility? You can choose. Which one are you going to take? Oh, power of flight. All right. Now, say why. Well, first of all, I think we just went through that. As a woman, I don't need to be made any more invisible (laughs) than, like, the entire world attempts to make me. So, no, thank you. And uh, flight, like, that's cool. I love the idea of being able to shift perspective on the world and see things from different angles. Yeah. And plus, you know, you could go to... Dordogne for nothing, you know, just like just leave. Oh, never have to go through another airport. <laughs> That's the real appeal of it to me. That although, would be the best. Although right? the question is like, once you get up there at ten, fifteen thousand feet or something, you know, what's your body feeling like? And that's the kind of question we don't ask ourselves that much in our fantasies. Although I'm so neurotic that I do ask that. And so, Greg, I would me because I'm a dude would answer the opposite. I would pick invisibility. But one thing that I wonder about is, okay, it's like, are my fillings going to be floating around? Are I had a knee replacement a few years ago, so that's not really me. It's something Dr. Schutzer put in there. Um, I mean, there are sort of interesting questions about what would happen if you were invisible, even as you've pointed out to us, even in the area of something as as quotidian as dust. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of practical considerations. If you you get dusty, if somebody pours a bucket of paint on you— Heck, if it starts raining outside, um, suddenly your invisibility cloak will look very obvious. Um, So we (laughs) kind of have to tailor our invisibility to the surroundings we're in, which is not that much different from the camouflage we were talking about earlier. Desert camouflage is not going to work very good in a jungle and vice versa. All right. So I think we'll 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 have to pause here because we have a whole other segment on the uh, questions of uh, ethics and, and invisibility. But this has been fascinating stuff. Uh, and uh, so stay with us. And once again, Greg is going to stay with us for the next segment. We are so grateful to have Lisa Yazik, Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies in the School of Literature, Media and Communication at Georgia Tech. We'll be back after this. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. 
All right, it's time to say some thank yous. And so I will thank Kat Pastor. She is our technical producer today. And senior producer Lily Tyson produced this episode. Uh, we are going to segue a little bit into the world of ethics uh, and invisibility. Uh, we don't have to have a good ethical system for invisibility because we don't have it yet. On the other hand, it might be a good idea to build it in advance. We'll tell you why in just a second with uh, Gregory Gabor. Uh, he is the author of Invisibility, the History and Science of How Not to Be Seen and a professor of physics and optical science at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And then Sophia Bruckner is joining us, a futurist, artist, designer, and engineer who researches how technology shapes us. She is the associate professor at the School of Art and Design uh, and a co-director of the Center for Ethics, Society, and Computing at the University of Michigan. So, Sophia Bruckner, welcome to our conversation. Hello. So, I mean, I think, you know, the history of tech, the history of modern tech is uh, invent the app (laughs) and put it out there in the field and then start thinking about some of the ethical questions. You know, that could be true with a COVID-19 contact contact tracing app or a dating app. You know, what about the guy who sort of likes to do simulated choking of people and stuff like that? How do you handle him on your dating app? Well, I mean, all these questions, they seem to be dealt with a little bit retroactively, right? It's like, let's encounter the problem, then we'll figure out what we should have done about it. Yeah, well, one of the things I do is I have um, students and um, different people I work with read science fiction as a way to think about um, the ethical consequences of what they build. Um, So I try to get people to think about small design choices, extrapolate them into the future and think about where they might go wrong. So invisibility is really interesting that way, right? They're, they're, we don't have it yet, but as we start to think about it, um, Sophia, give us a sense of what you start thinking about in that context. Well, I actually think the ethical implications of invisibility aren't all that different than things that we're already dealing with. Um, So pretty much any time you're in a system where you have an expectation of privacy, I think, um, you know, some of the issues that come up there are actually highly related to invisibility. Um, So, I mean, we could talk about extended reality, like virtual reality or augmented reality. I mean, you could imagine being in a virtual space and then that there are people in that virtual space who um, you have no indication of their presence. And um, that would be something you wouldn't want. Um, So uh, you have to start to think about ways. Is is it possible to be anonymous, but still reveal your presence to other people? Another um, thing that you you might want to think about is um, anytime... um, we, we already think about this in so many contexts right now is uh, with recording devices. Like we want pe- people want to know if they're being watched, if they're being listened to, and if they're being recorded. So, um, you know, these are things that we already think about, which would only become um, a little bit e- even more exaggerated if invisibility cloaks existed. You know, uh, Greg, that first one was something that we, we hadn't really discussed, but it, she makes a really exciting point, which is as people start to enter the metaverse, people start entering these these virtual spaces um, you know, with their other fellow incels, um, you know, th- there are some really weird questions about that. If you can alter your appearance in that uh, space and then behave in certain ways, or if you have an avatar in that space, um, what, what if you're invisible and you're sort of you haven't declared your presence? Uh, that's a place where you already probably could be an invisible presence in some situations, and there there might need to be a code about that. Yeah, that hadn't even really occurred to me, and it's kind of disturbing that it hadn't yet. Um, <laughs> we found something that he hadn't thought of. This is this doesn't happen very often to you. So, yeah, say what you're thinking right now. Oh, just, yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of pushed a bit of the concern about invisibility um, 
away from myself. I'm kind of the classic Jurassic Park scientist of let's just do it, figure it out later. <laughs> but part of that has been motivated by the fact that it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. But yeah, if you're talking about a virtual world now, suddenly, if the virtual world is mimicking the real world, then we really do have to worry about the possibility that invisibility could be either an official feature or some a hack that somebody puts into the system. So, Sophie, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I think it's like any space. Like, I mean, if you think about back in the day with chat rooms, like, could you be an invisible in a chat room? Um, there were like rules in place that uh, you had to reveal your presence in some way, um, even if it's anonymous. Right. Oh, there's that term lurking, obviously. I mean, there are a lot of situations where people just lurk. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there needs to be kind of an ethics of that. Although, Sophia, I think another question is, what kind of society am I living in? I, not to get all John Rawls about this, but am I living in a just society? Um, and am I acting in a just situation? And by that, I mean, I'll, I'll confess something. This is a weird thing that I think about a lot. This is my fantasy life. I fantasize about being invisible and then being in Russia and just messing with Putin all the time. I realized that I couldn't make myself strong enough to like do anything to him. And I don't think I could really kill him in cold blood or just plus Greg will tell you that they, they would see my knife floating in the air anyway. But I sort of thought what I would do is like when he was in public situations, I would like shove him, you know, and he would look around or I would like, you know, just tickle the back of his neck or something, and people would start to think he was losing his mind. Uh, and I would do anything that I possibly could to screw up Vladimir Putin. Um, but Sophia, that in that scenario, I am, at least by my own lights, I've decided that I'm in an unjust situation. So as an invisible being, I would ascribe to myself anyway. <laughs> I would arrogate to myself the right to do things that might be unjust in, in a more civilized situation. Comment on that. Well, um, like you, um, I and unlike Lisa, I you know I I do experience a lot of invisibility as a woman in tech, but I actually would choose invisibility as my superpower, and I always have. Maybe that's because I'm slightly socially anxious, but mm -hmm. I also think um, you know being able to choose to be private in a world that's um, you know filled with surveillance is. Um, very powerful. And also like, you know, in a world where you're, you're being like harassed online, actually being invisible could be kind of great. Um, and, you know, for a fun thing that I'd like to do, if I was invisible and my like smell couldn't be detected um, and I didn't make a sound, I'd love to like go up to animals and just watch them. Yes. But, but I mean, you know, to your, one of your earlier points, Sophia, in a metaphorical sense, Jeff Bezos is invisible and living in our houses, right? He knows all the stuff we want. <laughs> Based on all the stuff we've ever wanted in the past, he knows the thing we're going to order next week. He might as well be sitting invisibly in our living rooms. And so if we were a little bit more cyberpunk, which maybe you even are, we could be thinking, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be unethical for us to somehow or other turn this around at the metaphorically invisible people who are already trying to control us. Well, it's a power I would want to have because um, I think people who like Jeff Bezos have the wealth to be, you know, to have be private, and the rest of us, you know, give, you know, have to give up our privacy in order to, in order to interact with things in the world. And if I had an invisibility cloak of some kind, like that would be a way to take my control back of my privacy and like kind of hack it. Now, the, Greg, the problem is the minute Sophia and I do this. 
you know, and then a lot of other people are going to be just putting on their invisibility outfits and going to 7-Eleven and stuffing them with Twinkies and running out. Uh, and so pretty quickly, people like you are going to get hired by big companies to say, help me find those invisible. I want to know where Sophia is every minute of the day because I don't like what she's doing. Uh, there'll be kind of an arms race, I would assume, in terms of cloaking and uncloaking. Oh, yes. Um Certainly because, among other things, most people think of invisibility of just being invisible to visible light, to what we actually see with our eyes. But there's other types of radiation that's all around us, like ultraviolet, infrared. And it's hard to imagine making an invisibility device that would be invisible to every part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So there would probably be an arms race that, yeah, we, we become invisible to visible light. Somebody learns how to detect us using infrared. We become invisible to infrared. They moved ultraviolet and so on. So I also think yeah, there's a there's a real parallel. I think also with um, data collection online and data privacy. Like we have, you could go incognito on the internet because you don't want to be detected. And so I think all of those dynamics would also play out with invisibility. Right, but yeah. once again, you you assume. Uh, well, I don't know, Sophia. You you have to sort of ask yourself questions about what what can we expect from people. I mean, let's think about something like Google Glass. So, you know, are, are you recording? Are you not recording? I guess maybe right now there has to be a light on that says that you're recording. But there are going to be a lot of people who want to use some something like data collecting or invisibility surreptitiously. And you have to sort of decide whether to set up an ethical system that assumes a certain level of propriety or just assumes that everybody's a depraved animal. Well, um, the way I like to think about it is you can think of the technology as an amplifier of, of intent. Um, so if someone has bad intentions, this the addition of this technology will amplify them and the, the negative consequences. But if you have good intentions, this technology could potentially amplify um, the good consequences. So, Greg, maybe this comes down to, and we're just about out of time here, unfortunately. You know, when you buy, when you purchase your invisibility thing at Best Buy or from Amazon or something, Maybe you have to sign something talking about <laughs> terms of service, which nobody ever reads anyway. But no, maybe really sign something saying, I, I won't do this and I won't do that. Yeah, I imagine it might be have to be licensed like you would a drone these days, that if you're going to be using this sort of technology in public, you've got to have a record that you own it and how you're going to use it and so forth in order to get away with it. Yeah, and that's worked out great. We don't have any problems with drone operators. Just kidding about that. Uh, but yeah, this has been uh, fascinating stuff, uh, and I want to thank both of you very much. Uh, Greg Gabor has been with us in the entire way. His book is Invisibility, the History and Science of How Not to Be Seen. Sophia Bruckner is a futurist, artist, designer, and engineer who researches how technology shapes us, associate professor at the School of Art and Design, co-director of the Center for Ethics, uh, Society, and Computing at the University of Michigan. And we must go. Thank you, Lily. Thank you, Kat.